Morning, everybody. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, it is good to be with your people today as we remember and as we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we pray this morning that as we look at your scriptures, God, that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would continue uh, to challenge us, that we would be found as a people of soft hearts and open minds, and God, that the result would be an ever-increasing faithfulness to you. We pray these things together in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, that day that we celebrate or recognize the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. And it, Palm Sunday, the first triumphal entry, was a day that had a number of questions around it, including the core questions about the identity of Jesus. Who is he? <laughs> and despite the fact that this morning we're not looking at that precise text, we have been seeing in our series in the book of John, chapters 8 through 12, that exact question posed in a variety of different ways. And Jesus answering that question in a variety of different ways. Who is this one? We've seen him at odds with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And their interactions are not stoic or calm in their nature. In the mind of the Pharisees, Jesus is making some very brash claims about himself. And the most recent of interactions that we talked about last week ended in them trying to stone Jesus as he continues to reveal who he is. Today, we see the next in the long line of contrasts that Jesus makes. Over the last three weeks, you've heard stark contrasts, not a lot of gray area. They're fairly black and white in their nature. Jesus has talked about light and darkness. He's talked about where he is from, which is above, and where the Pharisees are from, which is below. He's talked about truth and lies. He's talked about freedom and slavery. He's talked about my father, which is God, and your father, which is Satan. And now he talks about sight and blindness. And so I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. And this morning, we're going to read the entire chapter. It's found on page 895 of that pew Bible in front of you. And I do encourage you to open it and to follow along as we read. I know this is a long section of text. And so as we're going through it together, I want to encourage you to stick with it, to exercise that sort of mental staying power that it takes. But beyond that, I want to encourage you along two lines. Number one, look for the increasing tension in this story as we read it. This is a fantastic story of Jesus healing someone and the Pharisees' response. And it gets more and more tense as it goes along. Number two, I don't often encourage this of people. It's our natural bent to try to find ourselves in the story. Uh, sometimes that's appropriate and sometimes it's not. But just let me ask you this as we read it. Are you the blind man or are you one of the Pharisees? John chapter 9. As he passed by, he, being Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. 
And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made, the mud, and made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No. But he is like them. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents, the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? Let me read that again. Was this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, that he was to be put out of the synagogue. And therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, that is an amazing thing. 
You do not know where he comes from, and yet he's opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, blind, a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus had heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. To be completely blind and to know that you are blind is one thing. But to be completely blind and to not know that you are blind is something completely different. This man was blind, and he knew it. And everyone around him knew it. It was recognizable by the way he approached his life. He was a beggar, and he could not provide for himself. And when he could not provide for himself, Jesus decided to provide for him. And so he gave him sight. And he did it with a specific purpose. If you look at chapter 9, verse 2, you see it. The beginning of the story starts with the disciples asking who sinned that this man was born blind. Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus said, neither one. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. So he mixed some saliva with some mud. He put it on the man's eyes. He sent him away to wash. And he was healed. The miracle of sight. Someone who lived their entire life relying on their other senses and having an incredibly limited view of reality. Don't let the significance of this miracle pass you by. Think about it carefully for a minute. To be living in complete and utter darkness and to see light for the very first time. To behold the many colors, even the colors in this room, for the very first time. The bright blue sky, the green grass, the pop of a red flower, the blue hue in the eyes of one of the members of your family. Or to see for the very first time the things that we all take for granted, hair or lack thereof, in Pastor Marty's case. 
the beauty of members of the opposite sex, the texture, to see the texture of the food that we eat, to look on the face of our children and see the wonder upon them. If you've never seen an image or a video of someone who was blind but is now able to see, I encourage you, spend a couple minutes this week looking that up on Google. It will make the gruffest among us come to the verge of tears to see completely overwhelming looks of joy and happiness as people see for the very first time. Completely blind and knowing he was blind. But now his whole world was changed because Jesus gave him sight. And those who knew the man could hardly believe it. Verse 8 tells us that the neighbors were debating if it was really the same guy or not. I'm sure he was going around telling everyone of the things that he was seeing for the very first time, the things that he was coming in contact with. Hey, I never knew that grass that felt that way was actually that color. What do you call that color? Hey, I anticipated you to look a little skinnier than you do. I, I mean, what is that thing up there? Jesus had changed this guy's life. And... The reality that he has experienced was starting to come into true perspective. Now, my friends, this is what happens when Jesus comes into our lives. And as the story goes on, we'll see this more and more. When Jesus comes into your life, radical change, glory revealed, awe renewed, blindness to sight. And even though this incredible act happens, there is still opposition to Jesus in it. Verse 13 shows that the neighbors bring the man to the Pharisees. It's sort of natural when something tremendous, a miracle takes place, you might want to tell some of your religious leaders. And so, indeed, they take him there. And instead of looking on and wonder and glory at what had happened, the conversation changes drastically. The Pharisees were at odds with Jesus because of his words and his works, and in fact, the last recorded incident was one in which they actually tried to stone him for blasphemy. They were not about to take anyone's word for it that Jesus was the one who performed this miracle. And so they started down a line of questioning, and here the tension begins to rise. The questions were Twofold. Firstly, well, surely this can't be an act of God. We all know that Jesus isn't from God. I mean, look at him. He broke the law. <laughs> he mixed mud on the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. He's saying things that aren't quite right. And in doing so, they're missing the point. Because they're looking for a predetermined answer. Make no mistake about it. These Pharisees were not genuine in their pursuit to figure out who he was. They had their minds made up. But as we think about coming to a predetermined answer, <laughs> it occurs to me that, you know, we are not too far away from approaching God with our own predetermined answers, aren't we? 
I mean, think about it in your own life. Maybe you're searching for God's will in something. Maybe it's regards to a relationship or a job that you should choose or a house you should buy or how you should approach something with your children. We all look for predetermined answers. An old Scottish woman traveled around a countryside selling housewares. And as she did, she prayed and she worshiped God. And every time she came to a fork in the road, she picked up some straw off the ground and cast it into the air. And depending upon which way the straw fell was the path that she would choose. And so all the people in the village became acquainted with this woman and saw her daily ritual of walking through the paths to different villages and throwing the straw up in the air. And so it was of a surprise one day when one man came along and there she was standing just in the middle of the fork of the road, and she picked up some straw, and she flung it up in the air, and it fell to the left. And so she picked up some straw, and she flung it in the air, and it fell to the left. And she picked up some straw, and she flung it in the air, and it fell to the left. And she picked up some straw, and she flung it in the air, and it fell to the right. And so she started to walk down the right. To which the man said, well, why did you throw the straw up in the air so many times? And he said, she said, well, because it kept falling to the left. And the path to the right is so much smoother to walk down. We all do that at different times with God. And that's a dangerous place to be, spiritually speaking. And it's certainly not genuine in our pursuit of him. But beyond just seeking God's will with a predetermined answer, these Pharisees display that they have a predetermined conclusion about who this person of Jesus really is. And it highlights an important reality. Their seeking to gain truth is not an honest endeavor. And like Pastor Chris said last week, there's a big difference. There's a big difference in the spiritual lives of people who are seeking to master the truth versus those who are seeking to be mastered by the truth. (laughs) And these Pharisees were seeking to master the truth because they didn't get the answer they wanted. They moved on to the man's parents. Surely, he's not telling the truth. Surely, all the neighbors who know him aren't telling the truth. Let's bring in mom and dad, verse 18. They would tell them the truth. They would tell them this was all a ruse, right? But sure enough, mom and dad say, well, actually, yes, that is our son. And yes, we're not just saying that he was born blind, but he was actually born blind. And yes, It appears that now he can see. But we don't know why and we don't know how. Ask him yourself. Why don't they tell him why or how? Surely he's shared with them. Well, because this interrogation was under threat. His parents knew that the Jews would cast him out of their worshiping community if they worshiped this Jesus. And so even in the event of a life-changing miracle, we've gone from inquiry to questioning to threatening And now the Pharisees call in the man a second time for this final interrogation. Look with me at verse 24. For the second time they called the man in and they said to him, give glory to God. Which is another way of saying, tell the truth. We know that this Jesus is a sinner. And the man goes on to give glory to God. And to tell the truth. But it's not the 
truth that they were hoping for. He gives glory to God. He says that God's glory was on display in this person, Jesus. The miracle itself is no longer even in question in the Pharisees' mind. Now they're just inquiring about the one who performed it. I mean, after all, they had seen what looks like a seeing man. They've heard the testimony about him from the neighbors. They've heard what they've all said. They've engaged with the parents. They have him back in front of them now. It seems by all external accounts that this guy was blind, and now he can see. And so rather than attacking the miracle, let's just attack the miracle worker, which is the core all along. It looks pretty peculiar that the ones who can see are continuing to question the one who used to be blind, despite all of this obvious evidence in front of them. And so the man gets a little cheeky. I've told you already. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Goes on to say in verse 33, seriously, if this man was not from God, he could do nothing. Now whether or not he's taunting them here, or whether or not he's just inquiring from a neutral position is unknown. But one of the things I love about the Bible, one of the things I love about some of these narratives is that there is a tonal quality that develops in them. As you read the scriptures, it's, it's hard to catch the first time you read a large passage through. But as you read something, and this is an encouragement for you to keep reading your Bible and reading it again and again, the tonal quality in a text like this reveals what's happening. Do you want to become his disciples too? Why do you keep asking me these things? And although the tone there we might read into a little bit, their reaction is very easy to decipher. They erupt with anger. Look at verse 34. They say to him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And the insult is both telling and dripping with irony. It's telling in the fact that the Pharisees were not able to discredit Jesus. And they were not able to discredit the miracle. And so what do you do when you can't win an argument? You just personally attack them and hope it all works out. I mean, that's what we do, right? I mean... I'm not smart enough to win the argument or the evidence doesn't fall in my favor and so I'm not willing to concede. Well, I might as well just say, you're a big goober. And that's exactly what they do. But this personal attack is twofold. First, it's interesting that this whole time that they've been trying to discredit Jesus by interrogating the man, his neighbors, his parents, and trying to get them to say that the man wasn't actually born blind. And now at the end of it all, they admit that he was born blind. When they say to him, you were born in utter sin, this is another way to say, you were born in utter sin because you were born blind. We all have seen it, we all know it. This goes to the common belief of the day that those born with physical disformity were born that way because of sin. The disciples themselves even asked the question at the beginning of chapter 9, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it himself or was it his parents? 
And now at the end of the story, after saying again and again and again, surely he wasn't blind, surely he wasn't blind, surely he wasn't blind. Well, you're blind. So how could you tell us anything? They recognize his blindness, which means they recognize his healing. But they still refuse to recognize Jesus' nature in performing that healing. Secondly, it's ironic that they quote or equate his blindness with his sinful disposition while claiming all along themselves to be righteous because of their spiritual credentials. It's ironic because that's exactly the point of this healing. Jesus says in verse 39, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And now this physical miracle that changed a life and changed a community points to a larger spiritual reality. The reality is this, that those who know that they are sinful are forgiven and healed when they meet Jesus. But those who don't recognize their sinful state are not forgiven. They're like the Pharisees who think that they see everything clearly. But in fact, they're blind to God and to the things of God. And so we see here in John chapter 9 a continuation of what Jesus has been saying all along. This is who I am. Jesus, the light of the world, has come to heal our spiritual blindness. Jesus, the light of the world, has come to heal our spiritual blindness. And in that reality, we see again both incredible warning and wonderful encouragement. Here's the warning. The warning is that if you go through life with certainty that you know God and you understand the things of God, but you got there apart from the works or words of Jesus, you are living in spiritual darkness, despite the fact that you think you're living in understanding. And the way out of your blindness is significant. I mean, you think you know, but your knowledge is limited. You think you hear, but your hearing is distorted. You think you can see, but you're really blind. And so how do you get out of your blindness? Well, number one, you recognize that you are blind and you need someone to give you sight. Being blind is bad. But much worse than being blind is being blind and not even knowing that you're blind at all. And the warning increases for those who have come to see Jesus in the flesh but choose to reject him. If you look at verse 41, the Pharisees are asking, well, are we blind too? And he changes the metaphor a little bit. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. Those who have physical sight and were able to see Jesus but claim that he's not from God are judged severely. German poet von Goethe says this, 
None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who, are, who falsely believe that they are free. Think about that for a minute. None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who believe falsely that they are free. Because going through life spiritually blind is very dangerous, isn't it? A couple weeks ago, I was skiing in Vermont, and one afternoon, as we were going down the mountain, a huge fog bank rolled in, and it was thick. It was thick as pea soup. It was one of those types of experiences where you really have to stop, and it kind of jolts you a little bit because you're moving at a fairly good speed, but you can only see about two feet in front of you, (laughs) and you don't know what's around the corner. And then, sure enough, boom! Some 15-year-old punk kid comes flying by me as fast as he possibly could. And I can say that I did get a chuckle as we moved down the mountain and saw his multiple-person crash. Because skiing blind is dangerous. But that's a picture of what going through life spiritually blind is like. When you think you have it all in control, but you don't know what's around the corner, particularly with regards to God. And so Jesus comes. Jesus, the light of the world, heals us from our spiritual blindness. So how do you gain sight? Well, you recognize that you are spiritually blind. Number two, you turn to the one who came for the very purpose of giving you that sight. And you confess your dependence upon him. One of the amazing parts of this story is that the only one who initiates is Jesus. The only one who does anything spectacular is Jesus. The man sat there on the road and begged, and Jesus came along and said, here you go. You're healed. He did for the man what he could not do for himself, and he changed his life. Jesus, the light of the world, heals us from our blindness. That's the warning. The encouragement is obvious, and I know in a room like this this morning, a number of us, the, the majority of us, would call ourselves a Christian. We would we've put our faith in Jesus. We made a personal commitment to him. We've asked for forgiveness. We've received it from him. And so the encouragement is obvious, and yet we have to remind ourselves of it again and again. If you're a Christian, God's done an incredible thing in your life. He's changed you. He took you from a person that was blind and he gave you sight. But the question for you is this. Have you been living like a blind man who's miraculously been given his sight? Or have you been living like the one who has had sight all along? What I mean by that is this. It's one thing to live in ever uh, ongoing gratefulness because of what God has done in your life. But the temptation for all of us is to become accustomed to seeing what we see around us, to the world around us, to integrating into that reality, to forget what it was like to be a dependent beggar as a blind man. Do you remember what it was like to be spiritually blind? Do you remember the sense of need 
and reliance that you had when Jesus came to meet you? After you encountered him, do you remember the sense of overwhelm, joy, and excitement that you felt as God came into your life? How like the blind man, it was your desire to share your new experiences, to process the things that you were learning, the things that you were growing in with those around you. Do you remember what that feels like? The encouragement is this. Your complete and utter helplessness to do anything to reach God was met by the overwhelming power of Jesus, who is the light of the world and heals us of our blindness. And so live like people who were blind but now see, not like people who have been pretending to see all along. Tell others about the things that you now see that you never saw before. We recognize that we share him with other blind people, not out of a sense of superiority, but of love and desire for them to experience the same wonder and awe that we experienced when we saw for the very first time. And we do it with a sense of urgency because we know that the time is short. Let me close with this. A couple years ago, a paper in Montreal published a story about a a man named Pierre-Paul Thomas. He grew up in Montreal, Canada, in the 1940s, and he couldn't play hockey with his brothers, and it broke his heart. Thomas was born blind. This was long before a cure was available. And so for most of his life, he could only imagine the world that people often described for him. For years, he walked with a white cane to avoid obstacles in front of him, But at the age of 66, Thomas fell down the stairs in his apartment building and he fractured a number of bones in his face. And a team of doctors went to work at a hospital to work on the severe swelling around his eyes. And eventually he was examined by a plastic surgeon who was going to help repair his scalp. And as he was talking with the surgeon, the surgeon just casually asked him, Well, while we're at it, do you want us to fix your eyes as well? Thomas didn't understand. Nor did he know how to respond. He didn't even know fixing his eyes was an option. He had resigned to living the way that he had been living for the rest of his life. But not long after that, Thomas had surgery. And the result was amazing. He could truly see at the age of 66 for the very first time. And suddenly this world of bright colors that he had never fathomed before emerged. He spoke of being awestruck by flowers and blossoming trees. The beauty of the story of a man who had lived his whole life in darkness but now seeing the light, now experiencing the wonders of a more comprehensive reality were upon him. But it's laced this story with a sad reality. The sad reality is that he could have had the surgery at a younger age and been able to see earlier. He had assumed that such a possibility was impossible and had resigned himself to a life of blindness when in reality he could have experienced the gift of sight decades before he did. 
this next week we celebrate Easter. And one of the greatest parts about celebrating Easter is that for centuries people have had to live with certain types of spiritual blindness. But with the coming of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, there is now no longer a need to wait. Sight is available, and it's available right now to God and to the things of God. Jesus, the light of the world, heals us of our blindness. And so I want to ask the worship team to come back up. And we're going to close this morning with a song that points us ahead to the events of the week ahead. Jesus paid it all. And I want that to be our prayer today. Our prayer of response to God's word. That we recognize that this great son of God came to reunite us to God as he says of himself and shows of himself again and again and again. Stand with me, will you?